Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit Firesider.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah. It's Monday and it's 12 p.m. It must be time for... What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, today, we are going to talk about uh, an initiative called Plate of the Union. My guest uh, is Ricardo Salvador, uh, the Senior Scientist and Director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, Dr. Salvador works with citizen scientists, economists, and politicians to transition our current food system into one that grows healthy foods while employing sustainable and socially equitable practices. And before coming to the Union for Concerned Scientists, uh, Dr. Salvador served as a program officer for food health and well-being at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. And prior to that, he was an associate professor of agronomy at Iowa State University. And while at ISU, uh, Dr. Salvador taught the first course in sustainable agriculture at a land-grant university, and his graduate students conducted some of the original academic research on community-supported agriculture. And there is much, much, much more to Dr. Salvador's story, but we don't have enough time to talk about it. And so now we're going to introduce Dr. Salvador. Thank you so much for being on the program, Ricardo. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. I thought the whole Plate of the Union thing was a great idea. So first, let's start. uh, Just tell us a little bit about uh, the Union for Concerned Scientists and what is the Plate of the Union initiative? Sure. Well, the Union of Concerned Scientists has existed since the latter 70s, and the mission of the organization is to bring a science-based perspective to the major issues of our times. The work that we do in food is part of the work that the union does. We also have major programs in climate change and clean vehicles and science and democracy and in nuclear safety. Um, so what we're doing with the Food and Environment Program is training a lens on the ways in which the food system could be improved for greater public benefit. Right. And the Plate of the Union initiative is part of that. It's kind of a bit of a manifesto, isn't it? Would you call it that? It, um, well, there's a manifesto involved with it. I, I, the purpose of the initiative is actually to elevate food system issues in the very near term, specifically during the opportunity that we all have for national discourse during the presidential campaign, uh-huh. when we have the eventual future president of the United States discussing with the public what the major policy priorities will be for her, for his administration. And so we believe strongly that food issues need to be part of that conversation. I could not agree with you more. Um, And so uh, you have a couple of partners in this. um, That's Food Policy Action, uh, which is Tom Colicchio's group. And you have another partner. Who is that? The Heal Food Alliance. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about them um, and why this is such a good uh, partnership. So uh, Food Policy Action, you mentioned Tom Colicchio is one of the co-founders, and Ken Cook is also the uh, other co-founder. 
Um, this is an organization that works primarily on accountability with our elected leaders. So uh, what they do is to score every elected official in Congress mm-hmm. with respect to how they do around good food. They actually have just uh, released this year's scorecard a few weeks ago, and it's available online for anyone to go and consult. Uh, and by the way, in full disclosure, I should uh, say that I'm a board member of Food Policy Action, so of course strongly support their programs, and sure. this is one of the reasons why I'm aware of them. But they're a great partner for us because of the fact that they have very strong inside game in D.C. because of this particular tool where you can identify immediately who the champions and likely supporters of good food policy are in Congress and who are those that actually need to improve their stance on on these issues. And our uh, third partner is the HEAL Food Alliance. HEAL stands for Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor. And the reason why they are a very good partner is that this is a broad-based coalition effort with a both a short and a long-term timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a roadmap to improve the food system, and the key tool that they bring is uh, coalition partners. So they very much bring in grassroots groups, uh, membership-based organizations, frontline groups who are impacted by the negative consequences of the food system. So between citizen voices and activist voices that they bring and the accountability of elected officials that these two organizations bring to the work, we believe we have a pretty well-rounded coalition to carry out this initiative. And and how are you going to um, address, like uh, once the nominations come down from the Republican and Democratic uh, conventions, how, how will you engage with those nominees to you know make sure that your priorities become part of their priority? Well, our entire strategy is to get the public to do this. You know, as uh-huh. nonpartisan organizations, we actually can't uh, do any electioneering uh, right. directly with the candidates. But we are determined that if you fix food, then you will fix many of the other first-line issues that these candidates are all speaking about. So, for instance, they all need to be speaking about national security. They all need to be speaking about climate change. They all need to be speaking about economic inequality, immigration policy. Mm-hmm. You name it, you go down the line. All all of these things intersect in the food system, and you cannot effectively address any one of them without actually addressing the fundamental issues uh, where they all uh, exist in the food system. So um, what we have found through uh, polling research uh, conducted primarily by a couple of firms here in D.C., Bellwether Partners and, and Lake Research, which do uh, cross-partisan polling, is that there is great political tailwind uh, behind the first candidate that realizes that food needs attention. And specifically what the polling tells us is that citizens realize that there is a food system. This is very different from about 10 years ago when Mm -hmm. we did very similar polling when I was at the Kellogg Foundation. And at that time, that was too sophisticated a perspective. But now the public at large understands that there is a food system. Uh, They understand that federal policy plays a major role in defining the contours of what that food system does, who it serves, who it doesn't. And they're very clear that there isn't a shortage of healthy food necessarily, but they know that that healthy food is out of economic access for many people who need it. And there's a lot of frustration about that. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the first politician and eventual elected leader who realizes that there's strong 
popular and electoral support for the first of them that realizes that this is a winning issue, I think will have great advantage. I hope so. Um, so why don't you um, give us an idea of what are some of the solutions that, um, you know, that you guys are proposing? Because I know that you identified, you know, sort of the income inequality, for example, or, um, you know, the lack of uh, fresh, healthy foods in certain types of neighborhoods and within certain demographics, um, you know, farm policy issues and so forth. What are some of the key points that you uh, would like to see or what are your... Some of the key solutions that you have, and then we'll talk a little bit about more about what the problems are. Right. Well, our, our first big idea is that there needs to be a coherent approach, that we have ended up where we are because of the fact that we have a fragmentary approach to food and agricultural issues. Now, there's a deep history to this, and so mm-hmm. there's no conspiracy behind how things got this way necessarily. There are interest groups that would want to preserve things this way, but there are perfectly logical reasons why we got to where we were right now. Um, But uh, having established that, this fragmentary policy allows us to maintain dysfunction in the system where we have, uh, to cite just one example, um, a Department of Agriculture that every five years updates on the basis of sound medical and nutritional science what it recommends that Americans ought to be eating. And so these are known by various names within each administration. Their current name is the MyPlate Dietary mm-hmm. Recommendations. Um, but while on the one hand the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health and Human Services recommend that diet, the majority of the resources of that same Department of Agriculture go to support a food system that by and large makes possible the junk food diet that is making all of us sick. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Department of Health and Human Services, which is promoting uh, health and public well-being. And uh, we have this this disjunction between what one arm of government, the Department of Agriculture, is doing and what the Department of Health and Human Services is advocating, particularly under Obamacare, which is prevention of long-term chronic diseases such as diabetes and hypertension, Mm -hmm. cardiac diseases. Um, These diseases are primarily due to the way in which we eat. And so Mm -hmm. right away there is this tension between what different parts of government are doing. So when we say that we need a coherent idea, there needs to be a high-level a template, and we're referring to this, for lack of a better term at the moment, as our national food policy, the nation's national food policy. And we think it can be described very simply, and that is that any policy and any investment of resources that our federal government undertakes ought to result in greater public well-being, and that means for everyone all along the value chain in food. And that is manifestly not the case right now because we have this fragmentary policy. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I'm going to just jump to a big question that I have for what I had thought would be the second half of the show, but um, you're already getting into it. And that is the impact of lobbying on Congress cannot be understated in terms of how they influence food policy overall. So do you guys have a mechanism or a, or a, or a, uh, a strategic game plan for dismantling our lobbying system? Because I think nothing will change, in my opinion, without doing that first. Can you comment on yeah. that? Well, you, you raise a very important point. Um, and uh, I mentioned earlier, I, I use this term, uh, inside game in yeah. D.C., which is all around the way that politics works at the federal level. 
Yeah, well, in the food system, there are 994 registered lobbyists that, that uh, represent a broad swath of corporations, um, both in agriculture as well as in food. Just for comparison, you should know that uh, the defense industry, which is also a huge lobby in D.C., yeah. has only 759 wow. uh, lobbyists. Wow. Um, so it shows you, you know, the amount of investment and the importance that agribusiness places on being able to influence our elected officials. Mm-hmm. And um, those lobbyists are expending, at least for uh, the last few years, uh, uh, probably about the last five years, they've been expending between around 130 to about 150 million dollars annually in maintaining programs that benefit them. So, um, if you're going to overcome that, uh, you know, a couple of ways that you might do that is to say, well, we are going to play that inside game better. But there's a couple things that actually mitigate against the real likelihood that that might happen. Uh, each of these are, are, you know, deep topics, but I'll just give you the top lines. Yeah. So one of those is that you obviously would need to come up with at least 130 to $150 million annually to be able to play that game on an equal financial footing. That would be one way that you might try to, to do it. Um, the other thing that you might try to do is to actually find champions within uh, congressional committees, uh, within the congressional caucuses and so on, that could overcome the power of the agribusiness interests. And uh, both of these are part of the inside game, and they're very unlikely places to succeed, if at all, you know, um, and that might be even in the long-term proposition. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to say that you're going to raise any, anything like that amount of money. And really, the influence game is both the money as well as the relationships that exist. Mm. The relevant committees in Congress are populated by folks that represent um, the middle part of the country where you have, you know, obviously our, our largest breadbasket, although, right. uh, you know, agriculture spread throughout the country. But the the... The short version of this is that when you have those committees looking out for the interests of businesses that bring jobs, that bring economic benefits to their constituents in the rural part of the country, and you can't balance that with what that is doing to the remainder of us in the country, those of us that live in cities, and basically everybody, no matter where you live, who eats what this food system generates under our current business models and is getting sick because of that, mm. because we don't have that that countervailing perspective in the uh, relevant congressional committees, then what you have is something that is favorable for production and for all-and-out, all-out-and-out uh, sales of, of junk food. But you don't have the public health perspective, the public health well-being. Those are considered to be completely different uh, committees and completely different right. purviews, which goes back to my point that we need to have a comprehensive national food policy rather than to allow this fragmentary approach to, to continue to exist. So anyway, but so that begs the question, then what do you do? Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why we're involved with this campaign. Uh, the, the sorts of things that I've just described to you are possible because they occur in the shadows. You know, mm-hmm. very few yes. uh, citizens in this country, I'm excluding people who would listen to your uh, podcast, but very few <laughs> citizens in this country 
are aware that these things exist, that this is how they operate. Um, and therefore, these committees and these lobbyists can continue to operate unfettered by any public attention. Mm-hmm. But if there were some light shown on this process, if it were clear to the majority of Americans that, first of all, there is a food system which is not a free market system. It is one of the most highly engineered political systems that there is. Mm-hmm. It is outright socialism. It is outright government support to preserve the interest of ex-business. <laughs> so if, if the public were actually aware that this is what we're doing, that there's public investment in maintaining the system as it is right now, and that we're actually making us ourselves sick as a result result of that, and that there are alternatives that would actually result in greater public health and well-being, I'm sure that the public would support that, which is one of the reasons why we're working with both Food Policy Action and uh, the HEAL Food Alliance, because they bring us both pieces of that. One piece is working on the accountability with the elected officials, and the other piece is bringing public attention and political power, because we really aren't going to succeed with any of this until the political power of the food movement is so great Mm -hmm. that politicians need to pay attention to what citizens are demanding of them when it comes to our ag and food system. Right, right. Absolutely. You know what? Um, That was so great. I think we should take a quick break because I have a lot more questions for you. And that was really fantastic, Ricardo. Um, um, So we're going to take a short sponsor drop and then we'll be right back with Dr. Ricardo Salvador from the um, Union of Concerned Scientists. We're going to be talking more about the political process and reforming our food system. So please stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Fire Cider added whole, raw, certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Dr. Ricardo Salvador, uh, who is the Senior Scientist and Director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And we're sort of dissecting uh, policy initiatives around uh, the food system. Um, uh, Dr. Salvador's group, uh, along with several other groups, has uh, put together something called the Plate of the Union. Um, And we were talking about lobbying, and I want to go back to the lobbying thing just briefly, and then I'd love to get a report card on Tom Vilsack. Um, and the 
<laughs> and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But um, one of the things I was actually listening, I was participating in a webinar this weekend um, around the meat industry, and um, and there was uh, one of the speakers whose name, of course, eludes me now, but one of the speakers was talking about how lobbyists can actually and do intimidate and threaten um, elected officials, whether they're on the state, the you know, the local, the state, or the national level. And what they do is, because it's such a huge company, say it's a Tyson, it's a Cargill or something like that, they'll say, well, you know, if you don't pass the regulations that we want, or if you don't take away the regulations that we don't like, we're simply going to take our plant and we're going to move it. And, you know, possibly overseas. So all those jobs will be lost, and then you'll be screwed at the next election. And concur- and, and so that was one thing I wanted to address with you. And then the other thing I wanted to address with you is I think the, the whole agricultural model of these entities, these very large, especially meatpacking industries, these vertically integrated, you know, highly concentrated industries, um, they do not have a good impact on farming, and they've taken a lot of farmers out of business. So first, let's talk about how the lobbying, how the, the intimidation works, and then let's talk about um, sort of what's happened to rural communities, and then how do you plan to attract more farmers to farming, given the you know concentration of the industry, essentially. I know that's a lot. Yeah. I know it's a lot. I'm yeah. sorry. Well, you, you've captured a lot very well there. Um, well, the, I suppose the first thing that everyone needs to recognize about this is that um, there is a lot of smoke and mirrors in the argument that you have cited from agribusiness, and that that is exactly one of the ways in which they actually leverage uh, their power, uh, both mm-hmm. political and economic. But the smoke and mirrors aspect has to do that for the very reason that you described, you know, the highly um, uh, integrated uh, operations. The number of jobs that we're talking about these days is actually relatively small. And yes. in packing plants, as you know, most of those jobs are very low-paying, yeah. very hazardous jobs that Americans can't be compelled to do under those circumstances and therefore attract uh, immigrant labor. Yeah. And uh, so to the extent that that benefits those communities in the Midwest, there is a very real benefit in that there is economic activity when those immigrants spend their earnings in the local community, but it is not like the benefit that those companies represent that they're bringing. And there's another very important aspect of this to remember, and that is every one of the companies that you've mentioned are global entities. Now, as... um, as proud as Americans have every right to be about the productivity of their agricultural system nationwide, and particularly the central part of the country, the, mm-hmm. the corn belt, the breadbasket of the nation, every American will do well in this particular uh, topic to remember that that is not the only place in the world like that. There are about five or six places like that on the planet that contribute to the bulk of the food that is produced and traded globally. Mm -hmm. That's actually the chessboard on which these companies play. These companies are now larger and more powerful than governments. Yes. And these companies will play each of these areas, the production areas and each one of the national interests against each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to remember that when the arguments, you know, that, that sort of uh, threat that you've described uh, is made, it is transparently clear that they're not talking about national interests. They're talking about their corporate interests. Absolutely. So why, you know, now 
we live in a capitalist economy, ostensibly, although as I've just stated, there's no, you wouldn't be able to examine the agricultural system and deduce that from the way that it actually works because it's a huge transfer payment system from the public to the private sector. But let's just go with it and say that they are operating on free market principles. Um, something that is very important to remember in all of this is that the market really ought to be able to operate unfettered. And if the result of the junk food economy, you know, demand generating the supply of that junk food were actually operating on its own, then it would be perfectly fine for that to occur. Now, remember, this is all a supposition because I just argued twice. That's not really what's going on. But there is no reason why the public, through its taxes, ought to be abetting that sort of a business model. Uh, You know, the more profitable those corporations are, the sicker we all get as a population. So... Uh, those are things to remember about the way that these companies leverage their their power and how, as I claim, it's mostly smoke and mirrors. They have very little interest in the well-being of the rural communities, the farmers that they're appealing to, and the elected leaders that represent those folks. Um, but those are good arguments that they use, and they sort of, in the shell game, um, you know, don't let you see that, in fact, what they're doing is playing those interests against the interests of similar areas around the planet. But you mentioned a very interesting thing. Uh, so let, let's say that bold uh, political leadership in this country actually, uh, you know, called their bluff in that game of chicken. And right. that therefore, we needed to come up with another way of providing livelihood for farmers in this nation that didn't depend on this massive, uh, primarily uh, an export and trade mm-hmm. commodity-based system. Then we have a different set of questions that we need to answer, which is what would these farmers produce and what would be their markets? Now, there's no uh, question that there is a ready-made answer that is staring us in the face. There's probably at least two components, maybe even three, depending on how quickly some of the science can develop. So let me uh, list them for you. Uh, One of these has to do with the point that I made earlier. If uh, we ate, according to the way in which the USDA and uh, Department of Health and Human Services recommend that we do, we would be eating far more fruits and vegetables than we currently eat, and we would be eating less meat. Um, Now, uh, the fact is that we're not producing anywhere near the amount of fruits and vegetables that are domestically producible within this nation to meet the demand that we would have if we followed the dietary guidelines. And I distinguish that because obviously there's a lot of fruit and vegetables that we can't produce within the United States. We're not going to be producing bananas, and we're not going to do much more than we're already doing with pineapple in Hawaii. We're not going to be producing items like that, which are best suited for tropical environments. But of the domestically producible uh, fruits and, and vegetables, we have quite a bit more to go that we could do, and we've done analysis here at the Union of Concerned Scientists that demonstrates that there would be tremendous um, job growth and tremendous economic development opportunities if we pursued that route. Now, at the same time, it must be recognized that the footprint of fruit and vegetable production is really, really small compared to the footprint of commodity production. So that would still be only a partial answer. So, you know, some farmers would find uh, that there would be a market for local and uh, regional uh, sales of fruits and vegetables. Then uh, the other great avenue that exists is that 
uh, if farmers could regain uh, some of their ability to work together so that they can determine prices and have a fair bargaining position with markets, they could still be major players in the commodity and grain uh, business, Mm -hmm. but they need to be working together and aggregate their supply in order to be able to do that. And that could work on a a regional basis for certain. Mm -hmm. Um, The farmers could also begin to add into the value of what they're producing and that the rest of us would be able to pay for in terms of environmental benefits, so clean air, uh, clean water, uh, regeneration of soil, these sorts of things. And for that, markets would need to be created that would actually send them the signals and give them the rewards that would then incentivize them to respond in that way. And this is not an area where agricultural science is limiting. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, our current agricultural system does not reflect uh, anywhere near what the agricultural science knows about how we can perform agriculture in a way that's regenerative, where we actually can uh, recycle soil, recycle nutrients, conserve water, and be as productive and as profitable, if not more, because we would require fewer inputs in that sort of a system. Right. But because of the fact that farmers are trapped in the sort of linear system that we have at the moment, then, as I say, they're not able to reflect what the agricultural science um, actually knows. As a matter of fact, we've done research in the Midwest that shows that, that farmers clearly understand that their choices are, are really constrained. If they're going to farm successfully in the Midwest, the answer about what they're going to be growing is already given by federal policy, meaning that if you grow the program crops, then your risks are covered by and large. You therefore are assured credit. And with risk management and credit, you take care of most of the major issues that farmers need to consider when they decide what they're going to be planting. So federal policy already tells them you're going to be doing program crops in the Midwest. And it also tells them how they're going to be producing because the methods largely are determined, first of all, by the crop choice. And also a very important factor is that we learned during our research that farmers know that their choices over the last few decades have been severely reduced by the type of technology development model that's in place right now. You now need to buy your seeds in a package with a particular herbicide. And so uh, while it's true that you can buy, you know, different cultivars, it's different cultivars of corn, different cultivars of Of soy. soy. You know, it's not like you have complete freedom to grow whatever it is that you want. And so uh, farmers realize all of this. They realize that they don't have a whole lot of power within the system. And so that means that we have a lot of uh, resentment and therefore demand for change, both within the farming population as well, as I stated earlier from our polling research, mm-hmm. among eaters who know that it isn't right, it certainly isn't a market result, that if you determine you want to eat healthfully, then you have to be eating, you have to be paying more for right. the healthful food supply. That makes no sense right. because the healthful food supply primarily fruits and vegetables, um, among other things, uh, does not have the marketing budgets uh, that junk food does. It is not as processed uh, uh, as the junk food uh, is by definition. And so it doesn't make sense that its end cost, its retail cost, by market principles at least, is higher than the junk food diet is. So all this to say that uh, if if we had the opportunity for farmers to respond to demand for both healthy food and a cleaner environment, and they didn't have some of these 
federal policy restrictions, that we could go a long way to answering then what are these farmers going to do. And I mentioned uh, one other area where if the science uh, comes along, there's still something else that these farmers who need crops that eat lots of acres uh, are looking for uh, might be able to address, and that is that um, everybody knows uh, that the first generation of biofuels was a little bit of a boondoggle uh, for a number of different reasons, but grain-based ethanol production was basically just a way of sopping up the tremendous productive capacity of the Midwest. Um, But, you know, there's a second generation of biofuels out there that both with a combination of technology that would actually be able to derive uh, those fuels from fibrous material uh, so that you don't get into this uh, either direct or slightly indirect competition of food versus fuel, but also that would lead to completely different land use, different land cover, uh, more rotations, more perennial vegetation on the land. If that's the way that that industry goes, then that would be a tremendous business opportunity for farmers who could then devote large acreages to the very large uh, acreages that would be demanded in order to generate commercially significant amounts of second-generation biofuels. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the science isn't quite there. You know, there's a few companies that have already begun to make investments in what I would call a transitional system. It isn't quite what I've described yet, but at least it's getting us to the place where the first experiments with using some of the stover that's produced in the very high-volume corn production areas in the Midwest can begin to be transformed this way. Mm-hmm. So, so it isn't like we don't have any ideas about what we might do uh, and and still have a thriving uh, a rural economy in the Midwest if, in fact, we call the bluff of the major global agribusinesses. Yeah. Um, I wanted to... You're still there, Ricardo, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I wanted to um, talk to you just briefly because when you were talking about sort of like how the Midwest is divided up between corn, soy, you know, the commodity, pro- or what did you call them? They call the program, the program crops that are part the of the farm crops. bill subsidies. You get crop insurance now. It's not so much a subsidy. You get the insurance, you get the credit, everything. But what about it addressing the impact of corporate farming on agricultural schools? Because this is something that I, you know, through all the reading that I've done in the last five, six years, um, I really see that people are coming out of ag schools, and they're really programmed to go the way of the, um, essentially, the donations to their schools. In other words, when Monsanto or DuPont or Syngenta funds an entire agricultural department, um, you know, at Iowa State or something like that, um, then that those people who come out of that school tend to have that point of view. And, and I think that that point of view needs to be challenged, if not completely changed. And I wondered if you could address the sort of educational aspect of this, as well as sort of the overall reform that you you know, have clearly stated is needed. Yeah, that's a very accurate picture that you draw. And so these uh, agricultural schools are the the land-grant system, uh, which is one of the great American success stories. And they date back to the time of President Lincoln, uh, at a time when almost everybody lived in the rural environment and was a farmer. And he determined that... um, those people needed to have the same access to higher education as people on the coast uh, did. Uh, At that time, university education was strictly for the elite. 
And so these became schools to impart practical agricultural and engineering knowledge. And up until about the 1950s, they really did serve the public interest, really did produce a, a lot of public well-being in terms of re- reducing drudgery, for instance, and mechanizing field uh, operations, mm-hmm. uh, and an understanding the science that undergirds agricultural production. Right. And so they're, they're a tremendous success story in many ways. And they were funded, as the name indicates, by, uh, first of all, uh, giving an allotment of federal land to each state to be used by each state in whatever way they thought best to generate the resources to create these colleges. They were colleges at the time, not universities. So some of that land might have been retained to establish the school. Some of it might have been sold to generate the operating expenses, and almost everyone did some combination of that. And so uh, these schools had a formula whereby they were funded, uh, which is a complicated one, but one of the key components of the formula was the size of the rural population, the farming population. So with time, what has happened is that the size of the farming population has decreased, and therefore that amount of formula funding to these agricultural colleges has decreased. And at the same time, they have been growing. They've been modernizing. You know, they're some of the best universities in the land, many of them very large student base and, you know, large physical plants and infrastructure to support. So their expenses have been increasing and their income from federal sources has been decreasing. And they were supported by both federal, state, and, and local resources. But all of those sources of income had been decreasing. And that sets up the dynamic that you described. So then they have to fill in that vacuum someplace. Now, the reason why I mentioned that up until about the very the, the 50s, there was a totally different tenor to the way that they operated is, is that uh, as a result of technology that was developed uh, around the 1950s, and I'm using that as a particular historical marker, uh, mm-hmm. it, it isn't really that clean. This, this happened over a very much longer period of time, but there was a real change. Uh, immediately after the Second World War when technologies that could be sold to farmers were developed. This is a a very significant development. And so uh, now instead of prioritizing the utilization of internal resources that would lead to regeneration, now we're essentially buying uh, fertility externally and bringing Mm -hmm. it to the farm. Now we're buying products from off of the farm in order to make the farm more productive. And, and some of that, of course, is absolutely necessary and does pay off to, to farmers, mechanization being probably the best example of that. But some of it led to huge problems. So, for instance, we now have this linear system where farmers see a clear benefit from applying as much fertilizer as possible, and there's no penalty for overuse of the fertilizer. Right. And the predictable result is that there's all kinds of environmental damage as a result of that. Now, um, the outcome of this is that the vacuum in supporting these agricultural schools, as you've pointed out, now is filled by the private sector, and as you said, then that means that they get to determine the agenda. So uh, about two-thirds of the budgets uh, in agricultural schools now come actually from support from that sector, and and that is a relatively new development. As little as about 15 years ago, that was still not the case. So now these schools are critical for a number of different reasons. As you've said, they generate the um, segment of the population that's going to go off and become farmers. They're going to go off and become the researchers, both within the public sector and the private sector. 
So the mentality that prevails within those schools is crucial to define what our worldview mm-hmm. about agriculture is and, and what we teach, what we know, what we research. So I'm just underscoring what you said. It's really important that that be reversed. So, so what we're doing about this is to go to the fundamental root of the problem. These are public institutions. What the private sector is doing, and I'm not ascribing here uh, you know, a negative motive to them. They're, they're sure. taking advantage of an opportunity that's out there. They see it, and so they're jumping right, right into it. It really is a default of the public sector that we've allowed this to happen. So the root cause is we need to be supporting public institutions to serve the public interest. So uh, we have been working with agencies within the United States Department of Agriculture that are responsible for directing their research dollars to these institutions, and we're making the argument that uh, the United States Department of Agriculture needs to support research that is going to answer the critical questions that we have for how we're going to assure agricultural productivity in the future. If we continue to lose soil due to high soil erosion, if we continue to pollute the environment, if we continue to promote a system which is degradative, then, uh, you know, the security of our food system is going to be challenged. So we need a completely different approach to the research that we do, and that's what the public sector needs to be uh, supporting. So we've done research uh, because uh, if you're going to make an argument like that, you need to be able to answer the first question that comes up, which is, well, how much is the USDA investing in the type of research that you're advocating right now? So we we call this agroecological research, and in our analysis, what we've determined is that under the uh, strict definition of agroecology, you know, there's about 2% of the total research budget that goes to public institutions that is being devoted to support that form of agriculture. Now, under more liberal uh, interpretations, meaning that at least some component of agroecology exists in their funding, then it's a greater number, 15. But it's still a very small proportion, you know, 15% of their total research funds. It's not going to support a whole lot of this activity at these schools. So there's a couple of of ways to work this. And by the way, the USDA has been very receptive. You know, one is they have discretionary funds, that research budget. You know, they determine what they're going to use it for. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, one way is to... allocate a greater share of that, and the other is to make sure that Congress understands that they need to provide greater funding for this kind of research. They need to provide USDA more resources so that then they can do the right thing. Now, uh, I'll mention just very quickly that this is an argument that the president understands very well, and he has recommended much higher funding for agricultural research than Congress has agreed to in right. their uh, budgets. So Congress is very much the problem in, in this situation. Very much. I mean, I noticed when I was um, looking up some stats about, like, sort of who's on the U.S., um, you know, on the agricultural committee both in the House and in the Senate. It's almost all Republicans. Uh, they're all very conservative. They're all very tied to, you know, the business as usual status quo, The bi- you know, the big players, whether it's Cargill, Smithfield, Tyson, or whether it's Monsanto, DuPont, or Syngenta. Um, and they really seem to be calling the shots about where money goes, how funds get allocated, and, and you know, how we are going to progress. And it's going to be a real challenge to get those guys out of the... Um, you know, out of their seats of power there. Um, We only have about four minutes left, and I wanted to ask you um, two questions, and we may not get to both of them. One of them is, how do you feel about the new trade policies that are being negotiated, the the TTIP with the European Union, 28 countries there, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Um, How do you feel those will uh, have an impact on domestic agricultural policy? 
And then if we have time, I want to hear who your wish list is for for the you know food policy position in the cabinet. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, th- th- so that's a complicated answer because those trade bills are, are so large so and they consist of so many programs that uh, anything that you say uh, generally, you know, is, is not really going to be fair to them. But, but I'll take a stab at it because we really do uh, need to realize the importance mm-hmm. of those bills globally as well as domestically. And there actually is precedent for this, this kind of a uh, trade bill. So, uh, you know, everybody that follows this knows that the original model for something like this was the trading block that was set up between Canada, Mexico, and the United States mm-hmm. back in the 90s with the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. Premise being that uh, there would be, you know, comparative advantage between what each of these countries could produce optimally and then and everybody would benefit by exchange of those optimally produced products. Now, in, in reality, we now have experience and we know that there there was a tremendous cost to pay for this, and again, due to the shortness of time, I won't go deeply into this, but uh, we now know that there were about 2 million farmers, primarily corn farmers, but also producers of other crops, uh, coffee, sugarcane, and so on, that were negatively impacted in Mexico and, by extension, in Central America. Now, because this was policy that was agreed to by these three different countries, then um, something that every citizen in those three countries needs to realize is that when you deprive two million people of their livelihood, it doesn't mean that they just disappear off the map. (laughs) They need to find something that they're going to do. Now, the original premise was that Mexico was going to industrialize and that that was going to sop up the additional labor. It's the sort of thing that reads really well in an economics textbook, but in the real world, that did not happen. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you have folks that are really skilled at agriculture, and those folks primarily uh, folks that are uh, rural and often don't have education. That was the case in Mexico for sure. Many of them Native American farmers could not easily be transferred into um, factories to manufacture radios for American automobiles. Uh, you know, as beautiful as that sounds in, in a, uh, an economic <laughs> no, textbook. No, this is crazy that they so, even thought that would work. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here we're talking about just one sector of the economy. But right. So therefore what happened is that they went where there was demand for their labor, which was basically on the migrant agricultural trail, which is why you will find many rural Native American uh, laborers that are responsible for picking our fruits and vegetables all up and down uh, the coast, beginning in Mexico, the Pacific coast, but then going right. into California, uh, sure. Oregon, and Washington. As and well also as into, the meat the packing, into the meatpacking so, industry as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. Meatpacking was another uh, siphon for that. So what everyone needs to re- recognize here is that when we discuss immigration policy in very simplistic terms, we're not seeing the big picture. National policy actually created both the push and the pull for that massive flow of labor. And I I know we're running out of time. I'll just say very quickly that we make up all of these rules. Um, in In the modern world, capital is fluid. Capital can go to wherever the best investment opportunities are. It can cross borders. We've made up the right. rules that make it so. So capital can, can flow, and so it means that uh, if you're 
uh, buying your bananas from Ecuador, for instance, it doesn't necessarily follow from that that your trade is benefiting the local economy there because you really will benefit the owners of those plantations, which are typically European, uh, at least That's in the right. case of, of Ecuador. So that happens for, for capital. Now, when labor attempts to move to where there is demand, there are national borders. There, that's not possible. So immigration policy is what would address this in a way that would benefit American farmers who need that labor and these displaced workers that are more than capable to provide that, that labor. Yeah. But we don't have the policies in place right now that recognize the reality. Instead, we have very simplistic, jingoistic uh, attitudes that are completely polluting our ability to make rational decisions even accepting that the original situation should not have happened to begin with. So going back to your original question, we have this happening now uh, at a much larger scale because now we have a global uh, set of similar policies that are set to be put in place, made much worse by the fact that some of these provisions make it so corporations will have greater power than governments in order to decide what is going to operate in terms of global trade. That's not an accident. And this is something where the sovereignty of individual nations is at stake, not to mention public well-being. Well, you and I are going to... interest against public interest. Yeah. You and I, I mean, unfortunately, we have to close it there, but I hope you will come back to discuss some of that because one of the things that I'm researching right now is sort of the land grabbing that's going on all over the world um, and what that's going to mean in terms of displacing people and growing more soy, more, more corn to feed the meat, global meat supply, et cetera. So um, we have lots more to talk about. And I thank you so, so much. I mean, this has just been a fantastic episode. I love talking to you. In fact, I I think I'm totally in love with you. And um, I hope you'll... I, I hope you'll come back soon. Um, and uh, I want to thank my sponsor, Firesider. I'm really excited that somebody else is going to make that instead of me because I found it a big drag. And uh, thanks to my engineer, Jack Inslee, as always. And uh, people, we're still in our fundraising drive. Hello, hello. Cough up the cake, man, because where else are you going to hear a guy like Ricardo Salvador lay out for you what is right and what is wrong with our agricultural policy? That was just amazing, and you will not hear that anywhere else. Not for 47 minutes, I promise you. Nowhere else will you hear that kind of programming, along with all the other great shows, my school food, my predecessor in the in the lineup, uh, Who Follows Me Next, Jennifer Liuzzi with Tech Bites, fantastic. I mean, there just is every bit of, you know, every reason to support this network. So go to the webpage hit the donate button show us some love and uh hopefully we'll be here for many many more years to come to help you understand how to change our food system one vote at a time thanks for listening today and we'll see you next week thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.